Um, we're continuing our series, uh, Jesus BC, Discovering Christ Before Christmas. The series, uh, looking at this overarching story, I'm going to put my, my notes up a bit here, uh, of how God set in motion a plan to restore all that was lost at the fall. And we see all the way through the Old Testament, these stories pointing forward to Christ. Uh, he is the one who came to rescue, uh, to repossess, to redeem all that has been lost. And so uh, this is the timeline that we've been looking at, uh, starting with creation and the fall of man in Genesis, then to the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And also uh, Judah. Uh, and I'm not going to recap all that has been said, but all the way through, we're seeing a plan that's unfolding. Fast forward 400 years, then uh, God's uh, people were in slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, and Moses uh, came along uh, and, and God used him to deliver them about 1500 years before Christ. Uh, where God made a covenant to both Abraham previous and then to Moses. And then last week, uh, Paul miraculously covered 500 years uh, in, in a space of half an hour uh, and nine uh, biblical books uh, to, to, to look through um, how, again, God was at work from Moses uh, right the way through to David. And so we're going to pause this week uh, as we look from David moving into the, the, the reign of Solomon. Uh, so the next slide shows us the fact that God has been making these covenants. These are just some of the ones. There are other ones too that God made with his people. Um, but Adam, where a redeemer, was promised right back when man fell in the garden. Abraham, where God said to him, your descendants will be blessed and they would become a blessing to others through the seed of Abraham. Uh, this, this redeemer that was promised to Adam through Abraham, that was going to happen. And that they, his, his descendants would grow to become a great nation. Uh, they would be given a land of their own. And then Moses was given this conditional covenant. The other ones were unconditional. But this was, if you're obedient, Israel, uh, then God will bless you. And if you're not, then he won't. And so this week, uh, we're coming on to um, glimmers uh, of God's plan through the person of Solomon. Uh, Solomon, whose name means shalom, peace. Uh, this prince who was called peace. Uh, and we're going to start with the covenant that God made to David in a minute. Um, uh, when Solomon was just a prince. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 22, uh, God declares Solomon that he would be a man of peace. Uh, probably referring to, people would have referred to him as the prince of peace or a prince of peace. Again, glimmers of what was to come. So, moving on to David. Uh, we left things at David last week. Um, and David we, we know was a man after God's heart, he was called. Uh, he was far from perfect, but he loved God. Uh, uh, he was passionate for God. Uh, he, he's the guy that defeated Goliath. He's, he's the guy that stood up for God. Um, he, and yet he was a guy of, of, of tremendous emotion. He wrote the Psalms. He wrote uh, half the Proverbs. Sorry, he didn't write half the Proverbs. He wrote half the Psalms. Uh, and and uh, it was Solomon that wrote uh, a lot of the Proverbs. 
He delighted in God's law. He was a guy that was flawed, uh, but uh, he was repentant after wrongdoing. He had become king of Judah. Uh, at the, uh, we're going to look up a, a passage in 2 Samuel in a moment or two. But the, the context of this is David had become king of Judah and then of all Israel. He'd conquered uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding enemies were now, uh, were now put to rest and things were a little bit settled. Something which would be unusual to David. He was a man of action. He had all of these things uh, that It'd been such a busy life of, of, of fighting and surviving. And now he was enjoying, perhaps, a season of rest. I was reading uh, just yesterday about a, 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 a survey that was carried out a couple of years ago called the Rest Test. It's the world's largest survey on people's attitude to rest. 18,000 people from over 130 countries um, answered questions about attitudes to rest. Looking at resting habits and attitudes of relaxation uh, and busyness, 68% of people felt they needed more rest. And of those that felt they needed more rest, they also were indicating lower uh, incidences of well-being. For those who said, I need more rest, there was also indications in the survey that they were lower in health and well-being. Uh, it could be, the survey suggests, you know, a perception that those who perceive they need more feel worse about it. But people were asked to choose three activities that they um, uh, chose for rest. What would you do when you're resting? What would you find most restful? And the highest one that people picked was reading. 58% picked reading. 53% uh, picked being in the natural environment. Being younger and being better off were also, uh, were also signs of people who had less rest. So if you're young, see the way I point that way? If you're young or if you're, or, or if you're well off, um, <laughs> um, then you, your chances are you needed more rest. Equally, if you were involved in shift work or caring uh, responsibilities. But there is a guilt it comes, that comes with rest, according to this survey. That busy can imply being important. Busy can be imply being in demand. And so therefore, people don't want don't to suggest that they've time for rest. It's that sort of moment in the, in the crowd when you get your phone out because you're so busy and all you're doing is pretending because you want to pretend you're busy because you look as if you're important. It suggests that we are not busier than we were 100 years ago. We think we're so busy now. Uh, but the survey suggested that we're not. But what they did say was that rest is essential for our physical and our mental health. My mum used to say, God knew what he was doing when he created the Sabbath. We were made to rest. So here we are. We pick up David in a settled place and, and we'll pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible with you, if you could look that up, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to pick a few verses out uh, and we'll read through that story as recorded. We'll just pick up the first three verses. 
This is talking about David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. David was enjoying this season of peace at last. The kingdom had pretty much been conquered and he's mulling over what can I do for God now that I've got a bit of time in my hands. Interesting, he was spending time with Nathan, a godly man. He was occupying, you might say, his time constructively. Four chapters later, we see David on the roof of his palace not being so constructive as he looked around and he saw a woman bathing on the roof of, of a neighboring house. You know the story. The rest is history. How we spend our downtime is really important. We need rest, but we also need boundaries, don't we? We also need disciplines. We also need godly friends. How we spend our rest time is important. Do we occupy that time constructively? David had spent years of downtime when he was out in the fields reflecting on God and meditating on his word, appreciating God's beauty. He wasn't studying, he was resting in God. It wasn't a chore, it was a time when he was resting with God. David was enjoying now great wealth. He was on his magnificent palace and he said, I want to do something for God. There he's looking and he sees the, 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 the tabernacle, the tent, and he realizes all that he's got. And he's thinking, I want to do this for God. His desire was probably good, but possibly not too, because the custom in the ancient world, when you conquered all your enemies, was to uh, boost your own prestige internationally by building a palace, but also by building a temple to your God. So I don't know whether David's motives were totally good or partially good, but they were pretty good. He wanted to do something for God. He could have extended his palace, but chose instead he wanted to invest in what God had. He wanted to invest for God. It is so, sell, uh, it is so uh, dangerous, uh, the wealthier we get, to think more of ourselves and how we can invest in ourselves. Statistics prove that. It's so easy to get more selfish, the better off we get. But, so David, I was thinking, I want to do something for God, and let's pick it up. And Nathan, by the way, the prophet, he said, yeah, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. He got the green light from the prophet. Verse 4, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not, uh, I, I, sorry, I'll, ju I'll just pause there. Are you the one that, um, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Let's move it on to verse seven. Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar. You see, David's intention seemed good, but it wasn't God's plan to build the temple through David, as we were going to discover. 
that was the job for someone else. And God was saying to David, did I ask you to build me a house? No. Because the instruction to the shepherds, to the leaders of Israel, was to feed my sheep. And David was probably thinking, think of the marvelous temple that we could build for God. It is tempting, isn't it? It is possible to have dreams for God, which may not be in accordance with God's plans. Passion doesn't mean it's God's will. I could become tired of 21st century life and think, you know what, I'll go to the mission field. My motives might be for me. Equally, when good things are happening in a church, we could say, imagine what we could do for God. Imagine the building we could produce and what that would say about God. But maybe what we're somehow saying is, imagine what people will think of how God is blessing us. I am not at all putting down church buildings or churches that are growing I find that exciting. And that is probably God's plan. But not necessarily for us or for anyone else. Equally, it might not be. I remember I went to Willow Creek in Chicago. And I was blown away by their children's work. It was just, it wasn't a church-sponsored event, by the way. Um, I was out there anyway, and I called in to see. And it was amazing what they were doing in the children's work. And I came back, and I just wanted to change everything. Uh, uh, God has blessed them they must be great and maybe there was a bit of this pride going on with David I, wouldn't it be great if I had a, a, a temple that showed how, how, how important God was and how he'd blessed me I don't know and we're not told that but there's a caution in here that what we do must be God's leading David's job here was to be faithful and obedient. And sometimes, as, as Dave will remind us in leadership meetings often, there's good ideas and there's God ideas. Nathan the prophet initially had given his blessing and then God spoke to him and corrected him. And that's why it's so important. And the Bible tells us to do this, to, to, to test prophecy. It wasn't that Nathan was a false prophet. It was just that when they tested it on this occasion... It was not in line with what God's word was. And so, verse 11, let's pick it up uh, as we go along. The Lord declares, the second part of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, David, are you going to build me a house? No, 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 no. I am going to build you a house. I'm going to provide a royal dynasty that's going to last forever. I have a plan, David, and your job is to be faithful to that plan. And so God puts a new covenant this time to David. And verse 12 and 13 says this, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so God establishes a new covenant this time with David. I will build you a house. 
You won't build me a house. It was building on the the previous covenants that God had made. Your offspring will be on the throne and your kingdom will be eternal. It will last forever. Once again, God pointing to the son of David who was to come. Yes, his immediate offspring, Solomon, would be the one that would build the temple. But that line would last forever. I will establish the throne forever, God said. David's response, you'll see later on in this passage, verse 18 onwards, and there are a number of verses, he just says things like this. Who am I, sovereign God? What more can I say to you? How great you are. There is no one like you. Sovereign Lord, your covenant is trustworthy. David heard God. He saw the eternal promises that God was making. He had seen and he had known in God's laws what had been said before. And he's going, God, even me, who am I to disagree with you? To his credit. And so Solomon comes along. David was not uh, made to build the temple. He was not called to build the temple. It was Solomon. And in 1 Chronicles 22, we're given the reason. David had been a man of war. He'd been a warrior and had shed much blood. And so in 1 Chronicles 22, we read this. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet, peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom on Israel forever. David the warrior was to be succeeded by his son, this prince who was called peace. Solomon brings in the kingdom in which peace is founded. This is the new era in the history of Israel. Solomon was the one who through his reign enjoyed this mountaintop experience of the history of Israel. Ian was talking about reading through Chronicles. You see the history after it of faith, lack of faithfulness so often with kings and the downfall of Israel. But at this point, the long march of the centuries had come to this point. Rest. Peace at last. And so Solomon was the king that was appointed succeeding David. He was a king known for his wisdom. He was the author of Ecclesiastes, of Song of Songs, as well as many Proverbs, and even a couple of Psalms. He was the one who was known to have built the temple for the Lord. And he was a great diplomat and traitor. All sorts of positive things we could say about him. But he had many flaws as well. He married a multitude, multitude. I haven't worked out the maths of this, but a multitude of pagan women. He excessively taxed the people. And if we fast forward 40 years, Solomon started to build the temple. He brought the ark and put it in the temple and prayed to God in front of the, uh, in front of the altar and in front of the whole assembly and things were good. 1 Kings 8, 56 says this. 1 Kings chapter 8. Praise be to the Lord. This is Solomon says this. Who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. So in Solomon's lifetime, 40 years of peace during his reign. Solomon, whose name meant peace, ushered in this era of peace. 
Peace is a wonderful word. It's a word that we use around this Christmas time. I remember um, talking to a friend of mine in work. He used to often say to me, look, you need to take a break. You need to rest more. And I would say to him, look, look you, you don't understand. At the end of every phone call, there's a person. Because, you see, I had this system. I had a, one phone, which was a work phone, and I thought, I'm going to keep my home life and my work life separate. So I had my work phone. And I had my home phone. This was the personal stuff. And I thought, when I go home, I'll turn the work phone off so that all I've left is my home phone. So work will never encroach on my home life. Uh, but in work, I need to have the home phone on in case my wife needs to contact me or my children need to contact me. So, so I need the, the home phone on while I'm in work. And so this guy would say to me, look, why do, you, why do you have so many phone calls you're always answering? Why don't you just leave them? And I would say to him, look, the problem with leaving the phone call is there's always a message that you have to follow up. If I can answer the phone. And so the conversation went on. And I remember one day, about 10.30, you could, I may have said this before, but about 10.30 you could have these sort of opportunities to take a wee coffee. I rarely had the opportunity to do it. You see the way I'm trying to show you how busy I am? And I was in the office, and this friend, Julian's his name, uh, he called up just on the off chance to see if I wanted to go for a cup of coffee. I was on the, the landline, and I had my two phones on the desk. I was on the landline, and I was talking to a colleague in another office. And as I was talking to the, to the colleague in the other office, my work phone rang, and it was a company that I'd been trying to get hold of. And I said to my friend, give us a wee minute. I want to get these guys because I don't want to lose this phone call. I've been playing phone tag a wee bit. So I picked up the other phone, my work phone. And I had this phone in my ear with my friend and this phone in my other ear, which was this business that I wanted to maintain contact with. At this point in time, my friend Julian walked in the door. He walked in and I had this phone in this ear, the landline, and my work phone in this ear. And just, the, I'm not telling a lie, just as, I, just as he walked in, Bethel rang. And the phone on the, on the front of me went off. I had run out of ears. And Julian, you know what he did? He never spoke to me. He just went and walked out the door. He was always at me saying, you need more rest. You need more peace. The Bible talks about the peace of God a lot. It tells us we were created for peace with God. We are created for a relationship with God. That ever since the fall of man, as we've been talking about, we have inherited a nature that's at odds with God. And because of what Christ achieved, because of this plan in place that God set in motion, it was all about restoring rest, restoring peace with God. Israel had for years battled enemies on all sides. And at last, under Solomon, a prince whose name was peace. They enjoyed 40 years of this continuous peace. A picture of what was to come. A picture of the hard-fought victory on the cross, ushering in this new era of peace with God. But the peace that Solomon and the people enjoyed was only short-lived. Because with all his wisdom... Solomon failed. He compromised and forgot that God said he was a jealous God. He ignored the commands of the law and he married 
pagan wives and pagan nations and made treaties with them against what God had advised and said in his laws to the people of Israel. And later in his reign, after spending seven years building God's temple, ten years building his own palace, incidentally, seven years building God's temple, after that, he stood some years later with his back to the temple on another mountain, building another temple to a pagan God. They had opportunity of peace with God and blew it. And so with the disobedience of Solomon, again, we see Israel spiraling down. The prince who brought peace provided only a glimmer of hope. He was pointing to something else, a hope for God's people in the future. A greater one than Solomon was needed to bring righteousness and peace to the people of God. Solomon was a faint picture only of things to come. We're told in Chronicles that people enjoyed peace during his reign. But 300 years later, after that, about 700 years before Christ, uh, Isaiah prophesied the fulfillment of the promise. And this is what he said. For unto us a child is born, or will be born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The life of Solomon was pointing to something much greater. And 700 years after Isaiah prophesied that, a company of angels were in the sky singing to a bunch of shepherds, singing this, glory to God in highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Today, as Ian was suggesting, our government is in turmoil, it would seem. We don't see much peace in the world, do we? And I suggest we won't if we're looking in the world. Jeremiah described it this way. From prophets to priests, they're all frauds. They offer superficial treatment for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. But when the Prince of Peace came, this is what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, peace with God comes through believing in the Prince of Peace. Peace with God can only come through accepting this Prince of Peace. We're never going to achieve it by seeking the things that this world promises. Romans 5 puts it this way. Therefore, since we've made been, been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Prince of Peace at this time of year, what does that mean for us? Well, I would say if you're someone who doesn't know God, maybe knows a bit about him. In a season where we celebrate these words, peace on earth, I would plead with you 
If you don't know him, you won't find peace. Peace can only become a reality through the Prince of Peace. A surrender to the Prince of Peace. An acceptance of faith in him. That's where we'll find true peace. That's where that book I talked about earlier points to. If you don't know him, you're not going to find peace with God. That's what the Bible says. No matter how hard you try. If you want to talk about that, I'd be delighted to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship of peace with the Prince of Peace. That's what all of this stuff is pointing forward to. But if you do know God, maybe you need to be reminded of the peace that comes with relationship with God. This is a very familiar verse read in a contemporary translation. This is what it says. Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Are you needing to be reminded this morning to rest in God? Has your peace been upset by some circumstance or some event? We won't find peace in understanding that event. We won't find peace in understanding that event. Look for peace that surpasses understanding. He can give you peace beyond understanding. And so the God who sets in motion a plan for peace with him to rescue the world sent the Prince of Peace so that we could experience peace with God.